Chapter Ten, Section One of the Promise of American Life by Herbert Crowley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Ten, Section One, A National Foreign Policy. The logic of a national democratic ideal and the responsibilities of a national career in the world involve a number of very definite consequences in respect to american foreign policy they involve in fact a conception of the place of a democratic nation in relation to the other civilized nations different from that which has hitherto prevailed in this country because of their geographical situation and their democratic institutions americans have claimed and still claim a large degree of national aloofness and independence but such a claim could have been better defended several generations ago than it can today unquestionably the geographic situation of the united states must always have a decisive effect upon the nature of its policy in foreign affairs and undoubtedly no course of action in respect to other nations can be national without serving the interests of democracy but precisely because an american foreign policy must be candidly and vigorously national it will gradually bring with it an increasingly complicated group of international ties and duties the american nation just in so far as it believes in its nationality and is ready to become more of a nation must assume a more definite and a more responsible place in the international system it will have an increasingly important and an increasingly specific part to play in the political affairs of the world and in spite of old-fashioned democratic scruples and prejudices the will to play that part for all it is worth will constitute a beneficial and a necessary stimulus to the better realization of the promise of our domestic life a genuinely national policy must of course be based upon a correct understanding of the national interest in relation to those of its neighbors and associates that american policy did obtain such a foundation during the early years of american history is to be traced to the sound political judgment of washington and hamilton jefferson and the republicans did their best for a while to persuade the american democracy to follow the dangerous course of the french democracy and to base its international policy not upon the firm ground of national interest but on the treacherous sands of international democratic propagandism after a period of hesitation the american people with their usual good sense in the face of a practical emergency rallied to the principles subsequently contained in washington's farewell address and the jeffersonian republicans when they came into control of the federal government, took over this conception of American national policy together with the rest of the Federalist outfit. But like the rest of the Federalist organization and ideas, the national foreign policy was emasculated by the expression it received at the hands of the Republicans. The conduct of American foreign affairs during the first fifteen years of the century are an illustration of the ills which may befall a democracy during a critical international period when its foreign policy is managed by a party of anti-national patriots after eighteen fifteen the foreign policy of the united states was determined by a strict adherence to the principles enunciated in washington's farewell address the adherence was more in the letter than in the spirit and the arbitrary popular interpretation which prevails until the present day cannot be granted undivided approval but so far as its immediate problems were concerned american foreign policy did not on the whole go astray the united states kept resolutely clear of european entanglements and did not participate in international councils 
except when the rights of neutrals were under discussion and this persistent neutrality was precisely the course which was needed in order to confirm the international position of the country as well as to leave the road clear for its own national development but certain consequences were at an early date deduced from a neutral policy which require more careful examination during the presidency of monroe the systematic isolation of the united states in respect to europe was developed so far as the two americas were concerned into a more positive doctrine it was proclaimed that abstention on the part of the United States from European affairs should be accompanied by a corresponding abstention by the European powers from aggressive action in the two Americas. What our government proposed to do was to divide sharply the democratic political system of the Americas from the monarchical and aristocratical political system of Europe. The European system, based as it was upon royalist legitimacy and privileges, and denying as it did popular political rights, was declared to be inimical in spirit and in effect to the American democratic state. The Monroe Doctrine has been accepted in this form ever since, as an indisputable corollary to the Farewell Address. The American people and politicians cherish it as a priceless political heirloom. It is considered to be the equivalent of the Declaration of Independence in the field of foreign affairs, and it arouses an analogous volume and fury of conviction. Neither is this conviction merely the property of Fourth of July Americans. Our gravest publicists usually contribute to the doctrine a no less emphatic adherence, and not very many years ago one of the most enlightened of American statesmen asserted that American foreign policy as a whole could be sufficiently summed up in the phrase, the Monroe Doctrine and the Golden Rule. Does the Monroe Doctrine, as stated above, deserve such uncompromising adherence? Is it an adequate expression of the national interest of the American democracy in the field of foreign affairs? At the time the Monroe Doctrine was originally proclaimed, it did unquestionably express a valid national interest of the American democracy. It was the American retort to the policy of the Holy Alliance which sought to erect the counter-revolutionary principles into an international system, and which suppressed, so far as possible, all nationalist or democratic agitation. The Spanish-American colonies had been winning their independence from Spain, and there was a fear, not entirely ill-founded, that the alliance would apply its anti-democratic international policy to the case of Spain's revolted colonies. Obviously the United States, both as a democracy and as a democracy which had won its independence by means of a revolutionary war, could not admit the right of any combination of European states to suppress national and democratic uprisings on the American continents. Our government would have been wholly justified in resisting such interference with all its available military force. But in what sense, and upon what grounds was the United States justified in going farther than this, and in asserting that under no circumstances should there be any increase of European political influence upon the American continents. What is the propriety and justice of such a declaration of continental isolation? What are its implications? And what, if any, are its dangers? In seeking an answer to these questions, we must return to the source of American foreign policy in the Farewell Address. That address contains the germ of a prudent and wise national policy. But Hamilton, in preparing its phrasing, was guided chiefly by a consideration of the immediate needs and dangers of his country. The Jeffersonian Republicans and their enthusiasm for the French Revolution 
proposed for a while to bring about a permanent alliance between France and the United States, the object whereof should be the propagation of the democratic political faith. Both Washington and Hamilton saw clearly that such behavior would entangle the United States in all the vicissitudes and turmoil which might attend the development of European democracy, and their favorite policy of neutrality and isolation implied both that the national interest of the United States was not concerned in merely European complications, and that the American people, unlike those of France, did not propose to make their political principles an excuse for international aggression. The Monroe Doctrine, as proclaimed in 1825, rounded out this negative policy with a more positive assertion of principles. It declared that the neutrality of the American democracy, so far as Europe was concerned, must be balanced by the non-intervention of European legitimacy and aristocracy in the affairs of the American continents. Now this extension of American foreign policy was, as we have seen, justified, in so far as it was a protest against any possible interference on the part of the Holy Alliance in American politics. It was, moreover, justified in so far as it sought to identify the attainment of a desirable democratic purpose with American international policy. Of course Hamilton, when he tried to found the international policy of his country upon the national interest, wholly failed to identify that interest with any positive democratic purpose. But in this, as in other respects, Hamilton was not a thoroughgoing Democrat. While he was right in seeking to prevent the American people from allying themselves with the aggressive French democracy, he was wrong in failing to foresee that the national interest of the United States was identified with the general security and prosperity of liberal political institutions that the United States must by every practical means encourage the spread of democratic methods and ideas. As much in foreign as in domestic affairs must the American people seek to unite national efficiency with democratic liberalism. The Monroe Doctrine, consequently, is not to be condemned, as it has been condemned, merely because it went far beyond the limited foreign policy of Hamilton. The real question in regard to the doctrine is whether it seeks in a practicable way, in a way consistent with the national interest and inevitable international responsibilities, the realization of the democratic idea. Do the rigid advocates of that doctrine fall into an error, analogous to the error against which Washington and Hamilton were protesting? Do they not tend, indirectly, and within a limited compass, to convert the American democratic idea into a dangerously aggressive principle. The foregoing question must, I believe, be answered partly in the affirmative. The Monroe Doctrine, as usually stated, does give a dangerously militant tendency to the foreign policy of the United States, and unless its expression is modified, it may prevent the United States from occupying a position towards the nations of Europe and America, in conformity with its national interest and its national principle. It should be added, however, that this unwholesomely aggressive quality is only a tendency, which will not become active except under certain possible conditions, and which can gradually be rendered less dangerous, by the systematic development of the doctrine as a possible principle of political action in the Western Hemisphere. The Monroe Doctrine has, of course, no status in the accepted system of international law. Its international standing is due almost entirely to its express proclamation as an essential part of the foreign policy of the United States, and it depends for its weight upon the ability of this country 
to compel its recognition by the use of latent or actual military force. Great Britain has, perhaps, tacitly accepted it, but no other European country has done so, and a number of them have expressly stated that it entails consequences against which they might sometime be obliged strenuously and forcibly to protest. No forcible protest has as yet been made, because no European country has had anything to gain from such a protest comparable to the inevitable cost of a war with the United States. The dangerously aggressive tendency of the Monroe Doctrine is not due to the fact that it derives its standing from the effective military power of the United States. The recognition which any proclamation of a specific principle of foreign policy receives will depend, in case it conflicts with the actual or possible interests of other nations, upon the military and naval power with which it can be maintained. The question as to whether a particular doctrine is unwholesomely aggressive depends, consequently, not upon the mere fact that it may provoke a war, but upon the doubt that if it provokes a war, such a war can be righteously fought. Does the doctrine as usually stated, possibly or probably commit the United States to an unrighteous war, a war in which the United States would be opposing a legitimate interest, on the part of one or a group of European nations? Does an American foreign policy of the Monroe Doctrine and the Golden Rule proclaim two parallel springs of national action in foreign affairs, which may prove to be incompatible? There is a danger that such may be the case. The Monroe Doctrine in its most popular form proclaims a rigid policy of continental isolation, of America for the Americans, and of Europe for the Europeans. European nations may retain existing possessions in the Americas, but such possessions must not be increased. So far so good. A European nation, which sought defiantly to increase its American possessions, in spite of the express declaration of the United States that such action would mean war, would deserve the war thereby incurred. But there are many ways of increasing the political influence of European powers in the Americas, without actual territorial appropriation. The emigration from several European states and from Japan to South America is already considerable, and is likely to increase rather than diminish. European commercial interests in South America are greater than ours, and in the future will become greater still. The South Americans have already borrowed large quantities of European capital, and will need more. The industrial and agricultural development of the South American states is constantly tying them more closely to Europe than it is to the United States. It looks, consequently, as if irresistible economic conditions were making in favor of an increase of effective European influence in South America. The growth of that influence is part of the world movement in the direction of the better utilization of the economic resources of mankind. South America cannot develop without the benefits of European capital, additional European labor, European products, and European experience and training, and in the course of another few generations, the result will be a European investment in South America, which may in a number of different ways involve political complications. We have already had a foretaste of those consequences in the steps which the European powers took a few years ago to collect debts due to Europeans by Venezuela. The increasing industrial, social, and financial bonds might not have any serious political consequences, provided the several South American states were possessed of stable governments, orderly political traditions, and a political standing under definite treaties similar to that of the smaller European states. 
but such is not the case. The alien investment in South America may involve all sorts of political complications, which would give European or Asiatic powers a justifiable right, under the law of nations, to interfere. Up to the present time, as we have seen, such interference has promised to be too costly, but the time may well come when the advantages of interference will more than counterbalance the dangers of a forcible protest. Moreover, in case such a protest were made, it might not come from any single European power. A general European interest would be involved. The United States might well find her policy of America for the Americans, result in an attempt on the part of a European coalition to bring about a really effectual for the Americans, result in an attempt on the part of a European coalition to bring about a really effectual isolation. We might find ourselves involved in a war against a substantially united Europe. Such a danger seems sufficiently remote at present, but in the long run a policy which carries isolation too far is bound to provoke justifiable attempts to break it down. If Europe and the Americas are as much divided in political interest as the Monroe Doctrine seems to assert, the time will inevitably arrive when the two divergent political systems must meet and fight, and plenty of occasions for such a conflict will arise as soon as the policy of isolation begins to conflict with the establishment of that political relation between Europe and South America demanded by fundamental economic and social interests. Thus, under certain remote but entirely possible conditions, the doctrine as now proclaimed and practiced might justify Europe in seeking to break it down, by reasons at least as valid as those of our own country in proclaiming it. But if the Monroe Doctrine could only be maintained by a war of this kind, or a succession of wars, it would defeat the very purpose which it is supposed to accomplish. It would embroil the United States and the two American continents in continual trouble with Europe, and it would either have to be abandoned or else would carry with it incessant and enormous expenditures for military and naval purposes. The United States would have to become a predominantly military power, armed to the teeth, to resist or forestall European attack. And our country would have to accept these consequences for the express purpose of keeping the Americas unsullied by the complications of European politics. Obviously, there is a contradiction in such a situation. The United States could fight with some show of reason a single European power, like France in 1865, which undertook a policy of American territorial aggrandizement, but if it were obliged to fight a considerable portion of Europe for the same purpose, it would mean that our country was opposing a general, and presumably a legitimate, European interest. In that event America would become a part of the European political system with a vengeance, a part which in its endeavor to escape from the vicissitudes of European politics had brought upon itself a condition of permanent military preparation and excitement. Consequently, in case the Monroe Doctrine and the Golden Rule are to remain the foundation of American foreign policy, mere prudence demands a systematic attempt to prevent the doctrine from arousing just and effective European opposition. No one can believe more firmly than myself that the foreign policy of a democratic nation should seek by all practicable and inoffensible means the affirmation of democracy. But the challenge which the Monroe Doctrine in its popular form issues to Europe is neither an inoffensive nor a practicable means of affirmation. It is based usually upon the notion of an essential incompatibility between American and European political institutions. 
and the assertion of such an incompatibility at the present time can only be the result of a stupid or willful american democratic bourbonism such an incompatibility did exist when the holy alliance dominated europe it does not exist today except in one particular the exception is important as we shall see presently but it does not concern the domestic institutions of the european and the american states the emancipated and nationalized european states of today so far from being essentially antagonistic to the american democratic nation are constantly tending towards a condition which invites closer and more fruitful association with the united states and any national doctrine which proclaims a rooted antagonism lies almost at right angles athwart the road of american democratic national achievement throughout the whole of the nineteenth century the european nations have been working towards democracy by means of a completer national organization while this country has been working towards national cohesion by the mere logic and force of its democratic ideal thus the distance between america and europe is being diminished and americans in their individual behavior bear the most abundant and generous testimony to the benefits which american democracy can derive from association with the european nations it is only in relation to the monroe doctrine that we still make much of the essential incompatibility between european and american institutions and by so doing we distort and misinterpret the valid meaning of a national democratic foreign policy the existing domestic institutions of the european nations are for the most part irrelevant to such a policy the one way in which the foreign policy of the united states can make for democracy is by strengthening and encouraging those political forces which make for international peace the one respect in which the political system represented by the united states is still antagonistic to the european political system is that the european nation whatever its ultimate tendency is actually organized for aggressive war that the cherished purposes of some of its states cannot be realized without war and that the forces which hope to benefit by war are stronger than the forces which hope to benefit by peace that is the indubitable reason why the united states must remain aloof from the european system and must avoid scrupulously any entanglements in the complicated web of european international affairs the policy of isolation is in this respect as wise today as it was in the time of its enunciation by washington and hamilton and nobody seriously proposes to depart from it on the other hand the basis for this policy is wholly independent of the domestic institutions of the european nations it derives from the fact that at any time those nations may go to war about questions in which the united states has no vital interest the geographical situation of the united states emancipates her from these conflicts and enables her to stand for the ultimate democratic interest in international peace this justifiable policy of isolation has moreover certain important consequences in respect to the foreign policy of the united states in the two americas in this field also the united states must stand in every practicable way for a peaceful international system and whatever validity the monroe doctrine may have in its relation to the european nations is the outcome of that obligation if south and central america were thrown open to european colonial ambitions they would be involved very much more than they are at present in the consequences of european wars in this sense the increase of european political influence in the two americas would be an undesirable thing which the united states would have good reason to oppose in this sense the extension of the european system to the american hemisphere 
would involve consequences inimical to democracy. In 1801 the North was fighting, not merely to preserve American national integrity, but to prevent the formation of a state on its southern frontier, which could persist only by virtue of a European alliance, and which would consequently have entangled the free republic of the northern states in the network of irrelevant European complications. Such would be the result of any attempt on the part of the European states to seek alliances or to pursue an aggressive policy on this side of the Atlantic. But it may be asked, how can European aggressions in America be opposed, even on the foregoing ground, without requiring enormous and increasing military preparations? Would not the Monroe Doctrine, even in that modified form, involve the same practical inconsistency which has already been attached to its popular expression? The answer is simple. It will involve a similar inconsistency, unless effective means are taken to avoid the inevitable dangers of such a challenge to Europe, unless, that is, means are taken to prevent Europe from having any just cause for intervention in South America, for the purpose of protecting its own investment of men and money. The probable necessity of such intervention is due to the treacherous and unstable political conditions prevailing on that continent, and the Monroe Doctrine, consequently, commits the United States at least to the attempt to constitute in the two Americas a stable and peaceful international system. During the next two or three generations, the European states will be too much preoccupied elsewhere to undertake or even to threaten any serious or concerted interference in South America. During that interval, while the Monroe Doctrine remains in its present situation of being unrecognized but unchallenged, American statesmen will have their opportunity. If the American system can be made to stand for peace, just as the European system stands at present for war, then the United States will have an unimpeachable reason in forbidding European intervention. European states will no longer have a legitimate ground for interference. It would be impossible for them to take any concerted action. The American nation would testify to its sincere democracy, both by its negative attitude towards a militant European system, and by its positive promotion of a peaceful international system in the two Americas. On the other hand, if a stable international system either is not, or cannot, be constituted in the two Americas, the Monroe Doctrine will probably involve this country in wars, which would be not merely exhausting and demoralizing, but fruitless. We should be fighting to maintain a political system, which would be in no essential respect superior to the European political system. The South and Central American states have been almost as ready to fight among themselves, and to cherish political plans which can be realized only by war, as the European states. In the course of time, as they grow in population and wealth, they also will entertain more or less desirable projects of expansion, and the resulting conflicts would, the United States permitting, be sure to involve European alliances and complications. Why should the United States prepare for war, in order to preserve the integrity of states which, if left to themselves, might well have an interest in compromising their own independence, and which, unless subjected to an edifying pressure, would probably make comparatively poor use of the independence they enjoyed? Surely the only valid reason for fighting, in order to prevent the growth of European political influence in the two Americas, is the creation of a political system on behalf of which it is worthwhile to fight. End of chapter 10, section 1